0: Welcome, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading Westwood's Jules Mendoza, who describes work as cultural surrealism, now has his own studio, by Isaac Vargas. And, Not Funky Room Renovations Are Coming to the Convention Center's Hyatt Regency, by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading, Bark But Don't Bite, Share Your Wolf Reintroduction Thoughts with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, by Katie Cheshire. And, Welcome to the World, Eight Photos of the Denver Zoo's Baby Sloth by Chelsea DeCane Jerabek. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Westwood's Jules Mendoza, who describes work as cultural surrealism, now has his own studio by Isaac Vargas. It was only a matter of time before Julio Mendoza, artistically known as Jules, opened his own studio. Mendoza, originally from El Paso, Texas in Ciudad Juarez, has been an artistic wanderer of sorts, offering his services as a muralist and collaborating with local businesses to fund his dreams of being a full-time artist. We caught up with Mendoza at his new studio in Westwood as he marked the career milestone with a soft opening this past weekend. A little while before visitors arrived, Mendoza's partner was busy trying to wrap prints that would be up for sale while he tidied up and made sure his standing heater was warming up the cozy space. The small studio, located at 3800 Morrison Road, can fit about 10 people comfortably before they have to Tetris their way around the space. Its walls are lined with Mendoza's works, like a hand-embellished canvas print of a bison that he originally used as a mural for Far Out Mural Fest in 2022. Mendoza's art delves into Latinidad through interpretations of Aztec and Mayan culture and snapshots of foods and other items familiar to many Latino households like elote, trompos, and lots of children. Wildlife also plays a role in his art. There was a time when it was difficult for Mendoza to describe his art to people. Eventually, he landed on describing it as cultural surrealism. My art is very rooted in my culture and mixes my childhood memories with bright colors, Mendoza said, and if you look long enough, it sometimes feels like the colors begin to move on their own. Mendoza, 32, can now display that work in Westwood, a place that's been his home for several years, thanks to help from ReVision a nonprofit in the neighborhood which offers space at its Rise Westwood campus affordable for local artists. Mendoza is excited about the chance to experiment with projects in a space he can finally call his own. While the studio is officially in use, it will only be open to the public on special events and some first Fridays. Mendoza said he would let his social media followers know when they can visit. Last year, Denverite spoke to Mendoza about one of his first murals in Denver that he painted at Lupe's Autobody on Mississippi and Sheridan. He did not have a portfolio of murals at the time. When he asked the owner for permission to paint a mural on his wall, the owner agreed and said, Yeah, as long as you don't paint anything gang related. Mendoza has experimented with digital projects and plans to keep working in that space. One of Mendoza's plans for the studio is to use the space to develop his podcast, Arte en Spanglish, a bilingual podcast that will cover all things art with other creators in the city. He wants to invite artists and collaborators into his studio to have dialogues about their own creative processes and careers. A year ago, in partnership with Racist Brewing Company, Mendoza designed three NFTs for the local brewery, He admits that he is still unsure about the concept of digital art, but he does understand the need to be innovative in a competitive market. It shows when the art you make is real or if you are just following trends, Mendoza said, admitting that he is still coming to terms with the desire to authentically create and his need to financially support his career as an artist. Aside from painting, he also hopes to learn how to create custom rugs using a technique known as tufting. When asked how he felt about the future of his art career, he was quick to credit the Westwood community for embracing him with open arms over the years. He's excited about the opportunity to add to the fabric of what businesses like Cultura Chocolate and Ana Maria Studio are doing on the same street. It feels like community, Mendoza said, and that is all that matters. Not-funky room renovations are coming to the convention center's Hyatt Regency by Kyle Harris. The Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority is getting ready to launch a massive room renovation at its Hyatt Regency Hotel at the Colorado Convention Center. The building, a brainchild of Mayor Wellington Webb's administration, opened in 2005 and has had several renovations since. At 38 stories, the building is one of the tallest in the city, and that's a whole load of rooms to rework. 1,100, to be precise. Such room renovations are a massive endeavor and a massive pain. Every seven or eight years you do a minor room renovation and every 15 to 20 years, you generally have to do a major room renovation, said Bill Mosher, CEO of the Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority. Minor room renovations, which have happened in the past, include replacing the carpet and furniture, painting the walls and basic repairs. A couple of years ago, the hotel spent $12 million renovating its lobby and first-floor restaurants. But what's coming is bigger. For a major room renovation, we'll go in and redo lighting, walls, bathrooms, all new furniture, carpet, and all the hallways so that it appears new, Morsher said. That's the process we're embarking on. So what's the deal with the hotel? The hotel was created alongside the Colorado Convention Center. Initially, the web administration tried to find the developer willing to front the money for a project. When that didn't happen, the city created the Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority to fund the project. The authority, which is governed by a seven-member board, appointed by the mayor and city council, owns the hotel. It was financed through tax-exempt bonds, but still pays all the same taxes any other hotel would. While the city has sway over the hotel, It is not paid for through any city funds. Renovation funds come from money set aside from earnings. If the authority ever sells the hotel, any profits will go back to the city. The renovation is a work in progress, rather almost in progress. The authority has sent out a request for proposals for project managers who are able to hire a team and guide the planning and execution of the renovations. Mosher's best guess is the project will be complete within three years. When the work starts, several floors of the hotel will be shut off for renovations at any given time, probably during slower winter months, but the hotel will not stop operating. What it will look like exactly is hard to say. A yet to be hired architect will help decide what the new rooms will look like. Mosher's hope is that they are airy and reflective of Colorado, both themes of the overall interior of the building. We want to be timeless, Mosher said. That means whatever's installed needs to last, conceptually, but also physically. A convention hotel serves so many people and so many different types of people that you need to be really well done, Mosher said. And not funky, not hipster, just high quality. And we have a great reputation for that, and we want to keep that. The following articles are from Westward. Bark, but don't bite. Share your wolf reintroduction thoughts with Colorado Parks and Wildlife by Katie Cheshire. Making a plan for wolf reintroduction in Colorado is no walk in the park. It's more like plodding through a snowy wilderness, but the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission is up to the task, holding four meetings over two months specifically to discuss the plan and get the public's input. At the first of these meetings, in Rifle on February 8th, the Commission heard updates from Colorado Parks and Wildlife staff, listened to public comment, and held a structured discussion about several elements of the plan. The Commission was tasked with overseeing the process after voters approved Proposition 114 in 2020. The proposition calls for the state to reintroduce the gray wolf by the end of 2023. Colorado Parks and Wildlife released the first draft of its long anticipated Wolf Restoration and Management Plan in December of 2022. The plan focuses on impact management and outlines measures that CPW can take to mitigate wolf conflict and help residents of Colorado, particularly ranchers, navigate the impacts of a reintroduced wolf population. All seven chapters, more than 300 pages, are being discussed at public meetings. The commissioners do not speak to each other except on these open mics, said Vice Chair Dallas May. In general, the public knows exactly what we know as commissioners. And the public had many thoughts on the plan, easily filling the entire time allotted for their comments. Many of those who spoke were outfitters and ranchers, concerned about how wolves would impact their businesses. Jenny Harrington, A leader of the Holy Cross Cattlemen's Association urged the commission to consider loosening requirements for compensation for ranchers whose animals are killed or injured by wolves, particularly the requirement that a vet needs to be part of the process, as there is a shortage of vets in rural Colorado. I ask that you not be so onerous with those requirements, but speak to some of these folks that you are seeing, she said. Her requests reflected those of most public commenters in Rifle, though there were a few proponents of introduction, too, with their own thoughts on the plan. The primary threat to wolves is humans, said John Emmerich, an emeritus associate professor of environmental science and engineering at Colorado School of Mines. Recovering them requires protecting them from us. But the CPW's draft focuses on lethal removal as a strategy to resolve any wrongfully perceived conflict between livestock and wolves. Emmerich asked the commission to consider requiring conflict prevention strategies before compensation and prohibiting lethal control on public land. Colorado Commissioner of Agriculture Kate Greenberg responded to people's comments. Regardless of what you're here for and what your motivations are, you're showing up, she said. Someone mentioned that we're making decisions for people who are going to be coexisting in a way that a lot of the rest of our state isn't, and I think that's important for us to keep front and center as we move forward. We've gotten to where we are through hard work and honest compromise. As the Commission works toward compromise on the plan, main topics on February 8th included funding, the eventual hunting of wolves, and the compensation program all of which have been recurring themes throughout the development of the reintroduction plan. Justin Rudder, assistant director of financial services for CPW, gave an overview of the funding streams for reintroduction. The legislature gave CPW a $2.1 million budget from the general fund for the project, but as Rudder noted, that will have to be appropriated annually. I'm not going to be requesting that they reduce it at any point that I can imagine, but they could choose to decrease it in any future year, Rudder explained. That's kind of how the process works. We don't really have the ability to say that this appropriation will be here forever. The CPW could also use funds from lottery overflow, which total around $2 million per year to fund Wolf reintroduction efforts, Rudder added. Though the funding picture isn't perfectly set year to year, Rudder said the budget appears to be workable at this time. Dan Gibbs, Executive Director of the Department of Natural Resources, which houses CPW, made sure to emphasize that the $2.1 million requiring annual legislative approval is normal, but most of the commissioners agreed on the need for a dedicated funding source that is more secure over time. Somehow, in this process, There needs to be a dedicated fund to accommodate this legal mandate so that other programs and initiatives of CPW don't bear the brunt of that," Chairperson Kerry Hauser said. While trying to estimate how much money might be needed for the program, the commissioners asked how much has been spent managing the wolf pack in North Park, which moved from Wyoming on its own and has depredated cattle in the area. Luke Hoffman, game damage manager with CPW, said compensation costs have been nearly $13,000 and CPW has spent over $40,000 on conflict minimization materials to deter wolves from coming near livestock. The department also managed to collar two members of the pack on February 3rd. At the meeting, Reed DeWalt, CPW's Assistant Director of Aquatic, Terrestrial and Natural Resources, shared that CPW received mortality signals from one of the wolves, wolf number 2101, indicating that the wolf hadn't moved over the course of three check-in periods. It turned out that the battery pack on 2101's collar had been ripped off. In the process of restoring his collar, the CPW also collared another male wolf, who appears to be 2101's offspring. The reintroduction plan calls for wolves from each pack to be collared so that CPW can keep track of where the wolf population is. Much of that population will be on the western slope, which voted much less favorably for the proposition than did urban areas, and the commissioners are focused on trying to make sure people there are compensated well for any harm wolves might cause to their livestock. The proposed plan suggests fair market value, with a cap at $8,000 per head of livestock. During its discussion in Rifle, The commission asked staff to consider revising the plan to raise the cap to $15,000 and examine ways to fund the compensation program. Duke Phillips, a commissioner who represents agriculture, said the commission shouldn't worry that higher compensation would incentivize ranchers to blame wolves. Ranchers, farmers, we would all rather have live animals, he said. Some clarity around where the money's coming from would be very helpful. Another aspect of the plan that will be revised is the idea of a potential fourth phase of reintroduction, which would classify wolves as a game species in Colorado, allowing them to be recreationally hunted. In the draft plan, the first phase calls for a minimum count of 50 wolves in the state for four consecutive years before moving to the second, when wolves would be categorized as threatened in the state. In order to move to Phase 3, when wolves would be delisted as endangered in the state, there must be an annual minimum count of 150 for two successive years, or 200 in one year. The plan indicates that a hunting phase could be explored after Phase 3 is complete, but the Commission wasn't clear on whether it even has the authority to consider such a change. My own reading of the ballot initiative and the laws of statutory construction Tell me that changing into a game species has to be done by the state legislature, said Commissioner James T. Touchton. If someone wants to change the statute to change it from non-game to game, they've got to talk to the legislature. Other commissioners agreed that Proposition 114, as voters passed it, indicated that wolves would always be a non-game species. We're all concerned, rightfully so, about getting buy-in to the plan from agricultural producers and hunters, Tuchten continued. I just don't want us to forget that we need buy-in from the entire state, and this Phase 4 is a pretty big wedge for a lot of the folks that voted for 114. The Commissioner's legal counsel proposed a compromise that would state, This plan takes no position on whether the Commission has statutory authority to move into Phase 4. The compensation in Phase 4 modifications and others will be examined by CPW staff before it presents a second draft of the plan to the Commission. The plan is to publish the second draft in the spring and finalize it in April or May. You can be part of these crucial decisions at two more Commission meetings. A virtual meeting on the evening of February 16th will focus almost exclusively on public comment and an in-person meeting in Denver on February 22nd will follow the format of the rifle meeting, with updates from CPW and Commissioner discussion in addition to public comment. Written comments can be submitted to wolfengagementco.org Welcome to the World! Eight Photos of the Denver Zoo's Baby Sloth by Chelsea DeCane Jerebeck Step aside, Super Bowl puppies! Our attention for cute baby animals is currently being consumed by the Denver Zoo's latest arrival, a two-week-old baby Lenny's two-toed sloth. And according to Twitter, this new arrival is a bigger deal than meeting POTUS. Jesse Freeman, Denver Zoo float zookeeper, says this is the third baby from sloth parents Charlotte and Elliot. Freeman is responsible for caring for the animals in the Tropical Discovery Building, which includes preparing for feeding the baby sloth its steamed sweet potato diet. For now, it's enjoying mom's milk. There is such excitement and anticipation around babies, especially from the volunteers, Freeman says. As soon as the announcement goes out, people want to know when. Babies are always the highlight at the zoo. As far as the baby bump watch, well, there wasn't one. It's pretty hard to tell if a sloth is pregnant. The zoo was preparing for the baby sloth to arrive in October, but it was instead born on January 26. Freeman says the zoo watches for copulation, and Charlotte also has monthly ultrasounds to look for pregnancy. Charlotte, who normally weighs about 17 pounds, only gained two to three pounds during pregnancy. So is this baby a boy or a girl? Freeman says it's hard to determine a sloth's gender, because you can't see the animal's genitals. The zoo recently sent in a hair sample, and while they now know the gender, it won't be revealed to the public until later this month. The Denver Zoo, a nonprofit, will pair the gender reveal with a naming contest fundraiser. Coloradans will be encouraged to submit names along with a small donation toward the care of the zoo's animals. Personally, we love the name Westward. Zoo visitors can spot the baby sloth clinging to mom for about six to nine months. Charlotte, named after Princess Charlotte of Wales, came to the Denver Zoo in 2015 after confiscation from the illegal pet trade. Freeman says Elliot, who arrived at the zoo in 2007, came from a similar situation. Where are Charlotte and Elliot's other two sloth babies? Baby Ruth now lives in the Dallas World Aquarium And Wookiee still lives at the Denver Zoo as an animal ambassador. Bingo nonprofits and advocates say new bingo rules are a bust. By Katie Cheshire. The Colorado Secretary of State's office announced revisions to the state's bingo rules that provide for a new game using bingo strip cards and electronic aids to go with it. But charitable gaming proponents say the changes are less of a bingo and more of a flop. It's disappointing to say the least, says Richard Lemon, president of the Colorado Charitable Bingo Association. We have a new game that was approved by the legislature and the governor. It was developed in 2022 and approved in 2022 and the Secretary of State is writing rules that apply to conventional bingo from 1958. Lemon refers to the statewide vote in 1958 that legalized bingo and raffles enshrining authorized games of chance and lotteries in the Colorado Constitution under title 24 article 21 part 6 in Colorado the only entities eligible for charitable gaming licenses for bingo are registered nonprofits that have existed for five or more years the Colorado Secretary of State's office oversees compliance with the rules and bingo proponents say the game is under its watch is trapped in the past Efforts to bring sweeping changes to the rules in the form of Amendment F in the 2022 election and Amendment C in the 2020 election failed after facing opposition from casinos and the veterans of foreign wars. After those defeats, Lemon told Westward that the CCBA would look into smaller changes that might improve conditions, but if this is any indication of how that would go, he isn't hopeful. It was all for nothing, he says. It's a lot of work, and then you get it all passed, and then these guys just muck it up with rules, which is terrible. A bingo strip card is a set of five bingo games. It's like traditional bingo, but offers a draw for players because of higher prize potential and engaging designs. In a set of five cards, there are randomized free spaces, oftentimes more than one per card as well as symbols in those free spaces and the chance for more prize money because people buy in for five games at once we want to leave traditional bingo alone let them have their two thousand dollar limit and not really step on any toes there but have this separate thing so that nonprofits can offer something really special lemon says the game is played in california to great fundraising success for nonprofits there he adds and the goal was to get those same permissions here. Bingo proponents asked for a $1,000 per game prize limit and a $10,000 cap on the total prizes of the day for events that include bingo strip cards. Instead, the new rules cap prize limits for events that include bingo strip card games to $4,000. The new rules also raise the prize limit for single games of strip bingo strip-card bingo from $1,000 to $2,000. However, as bingo advocates point out, that means that only two to four games could be played at any one event. And if a bingo strip-card game is played, the organizer can't offer other games because of the $4,000 event limit. As a result, bingo players won't get the variety that the legislation was designed to provide. In written comments submitted to the Secretary of State's office, bingo proponents expressed their worries at the proposed structure, arguing it would further limit charities' ability to generate funds through bingo. As you know, since the start of limited gaming, sports betting, and other competitive gaming in Colorado, charitable bingo has suffered, wrote Julie Hutchinson, president of the Chelsea Hutchinson Foundation, which was created in honor of her daughter and uses bingo to raise money. Our attempts at modernizing bingo during the last two legislative sessions were met with fierce resistance from the casino lobby. If charitable bingo is to survive, we must be more proactive for charity. That means lifting restrictions that unnecessarily hamper charitable bingo fundraising. In addition to the restrictive prize limits, which Hutchinson and Lemon both took issue with in their written comments, The Secretary of State's rules require only one free space per card, eliminating one of the defining features of bingo strip card games. Different artwork and style of play sets bingo strip card games apart from conventional bingo cards, Limon wrote. Multiple free spaces and the use of symbols in the playing grid reduces session time, adds incentives to buy, and is necessary to make bingo strip card games fun and profitable. It appears their urging was ignored, and Lemon isn't exactly surprised. The Secretary of State, he says, similarly hampered the introduction of concealed face bingo in Colorado. In that game, a caller draws 48 numbers before anyone sees their card. Then, people reveal their cards and compare who has the most spaces, buying more numbers to try to compete with each other. Lemon says it's popular elsewhere. The number one bingo game in the country is legal in Colorado, but the rules that were written make it too difficult to play, he says. If you look to find who's playing concealed face bingo, you won't find it because nobody's using it. The rules imposed in Colorado would have required slowing the game to meet extensive tracking requirements, but the fun of the game is in the frenzy, which slowing the game prevents. There won't be any frenzy for bingo strip cards either, thanks to these new rules. It's kind of what they do here, Lemon concludes. 20th Street Gym Boxing Program at Rec Center Gets KO'd Once Again by Kyle Wagner. For Coach Robert Baca and his 20th Street Gym Boxing, the hits just keep coming. After surviving a 2013 restructuring by Denver Parks and Recreation, which considers the nearly 80-year-old program a niche program. This youth-oriented boxing tradition, located inside the 20th Street Recreation Center, nearly folded completely because of the pandemic, then fought its way back last year. But Baca and his students were forced to move out once again in mid-December, this time because the city needed the 20th Street building to serve as an intake center for the migrants who'd started arriving in October with dozens landing in Denver every day by the end of the year. On February 6, the city estimated that more than 4,500 migrants had come to Denver. The 20th Street Recreation Center has a long and storied past from its start in 1908, when it was used as a bathhouse for people who didn't have indoor plumbing, to its turn as a host for box- boxing matches with Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Stevie Johnston, and more but most of its regulars are from the neighborhood. I get it. We needed to find migrants a place to live, and that's important. Those are human beings, Baca says. But what about our homeless, who still wander the streets and haven't been able to be processed and housed, or our kids, who need a place to go where they feel safe and welcome? According to Cynthia Karwoski, spokesperson for Parks and Rec, shutting down 20th Street along with two other rec centers, Rude and Central Park, was a hard but necessary decision. When we were seeing the rapid increase in the arrival of migrants, we had to do something, and as quickly as possible, she says. A lot of things have to go into the decision of which places to use, because there are fire codes, capacity issues, certain kinds of sprinkler systems that have to be in place. You can't just say, oh, we want it to be this one because inspections have to happen and logistics need to be taken into consideration. The central location of 20th Street was also key to why it was chosen. We needed something easily accessible to bring them in and figure out where they should go next," Kravatsky says. We had migrants coming into the train station by bus getting dropped off in the heart of the city. But Baca, who has been running boxing programs in the city for more than 40 years, notes that the center's location also made it ideal for young people. Over the years, I've seen how much it helps these kids to have this, and it really was made easier for them because they were able to get here by bus or by walking, he says. Now they're asking me, Coach, when are we going back? And honestly, I don't know what to tell them. Kravatsky says that no decisions have been made yet about reopening 20th Street, which has been closed since December 13th. Rood reopened on January 30th. Central Park, which also closed December 13th, remains off-limits while the city prepares it for reopening. Cleaning these places after something like this can be time-consuming and involved, she explains, and we need to identify another good spot to serve as a welcome and processing center. In the meantime, Baca and his students have been relying on the kindness of other gyms to continue, although that kindness comes at a cost. I can't just use the other gyms space for free, Baca explains. I was paying at 20th Street, and now I have to pay at these spots too. But also, I can't fit my entire team into these places because they're already full with their own programs. The biggest problem with using other gyms, though, is that they are much more difficult for students to reach. Now their parents have to drive them, And you're talking about people who already have to work more than one job and just don't have a lot of extra time, Baca says. The 20th Street location is central, but if you have to go clear out to Aurora or down to South Denver, you're talking about time and gas, and sometimes our people just don't have either of those. The change has resulted in the program losing students. I am down to just 10 to 15 students right now, Baca says. I'd been up to maybe 30 or 40, but after the pandemic, It just really dropped, and then it felt like we had battled back to being full again on a regular basis. The 20th Street facilities didn't fully reopen until last February, when Baca and his team were able to return. I just thought, okay, we can do this, and we'll just make it happen, Baca recalls. You have to understand, these are kids in our community who are getting bullied in school, who have problems following orders, Baca says, but they come into a gym, and it's a family we listen to them and we understand them and we offer a healthy way to work through some of those issues when we're not there they have to find other options for blowing off steam and surviving although Baca's 20th Street gym program initially got to use the rec center space for free when it started there in 2004 it's had to pay for the last several years because of that Baca now has to charge the students $50 a month which he feels shows their serious commitment to being there. These are not rich kids going to a fancy fitness club in the suburbs, Baca says. Baca has to scrape together the money to pay the city. They charged me a pretty high price to rent it to run my team, he adds, and I had just paid rent three months in advance for the first quarter, and then the day before it was going to close, they contacted me and said, you have to leave. He says he had to raise quite a fuss, I mean actually a bunch of screaming to get his money back, but he did, and now he's putting that toward renting gym space around the city. They never offered any alternative options. That's what's so difficult to accept, he adds. At first, the city did not publicly announce which centers would be used for processing and housing the migrants. We knew that it would put attention on those buildings, and some of it would not be positive, Kravoski says we didn't want to put the staff or the people heading to those places at risk of being a target. But while officials didn't want the whole city to know, Karvasky adds, we did, did tell the people who belonged to those centers within that zip code and we did some signage on the buildings. And we told people, if you are a member of these places you can go to any rec center you want. Some people weren't happy about it but they understood that we needed to make this happen. However, the city did not offer Baca's program any alternatives, and still hasn't, much less given Baca a date when he can return. The city of Denver is no longer housing migrants, Kravosky explains, but we do still need to have a place where people can come in and give their information and then find out where they can go next, because there are religious institutions and hotels where we can send them and so we are hoping to return 20th Street to its original intent once we fully stop processing intakes there. That can't come fast enough for Baca and his students. It's boxing season, and they need to train for the Golden Gloves State Tournament in Denver starting March 6th. But Baca is worried that by the time they move back into 20th Street or find a suitable space, they won't have time to get ready. You just have to tell these kids, hey, I can't help you anymore. That's what hurts me the most, Baca says. It really just breaks my heart. The nonprofit 20th Street Gym Boxing Club will host a fundraiser alongside its team awards on February 18th from 5 to 8 p.m. at La Fiesta, 2340 Champa Street. Tickets are $30 per adults and $15 for kids. To make a direct donation to the club, email robertbaca fifty three at gmail.com hot air another famous balloon once flew over Colorado by Patricia Calhoun the Chinese spy balloon that was just shot down raises many questions including this where are the Heans back on October 15 2009 as another balloon was spotted hovering over the American West A 911 call reported that little Falcon Heen had accidentally gone aloft. People around the world held their breath when they heard that the six-year-old was trapped inside a silver flying saucer, a homemade helium balloon that had escaped into the skies from the boys' Fort Collins home. National Guard helicopters and police cars pursued the balloon, which flew for more than an hour and finally landed about a dozen miles from Denver International Airport. The boy was not aboard. He was later found hiding in the family's attic. In an interview with Wolf Blitzer that night, after being asked whether he'd heard his parents calling for him, Falcon turned to his father and said, You guys said that, um, we did this for the show. A few weeks later, parents Richard Heen and Mayumi were charged in connection with the hoax and, after guilty pleas, ordered to 90 and 20 days in jail, respectively. But not before Falcon puked in front of Meredith Vieira and the rest of America on Today, and the saga collected hundreds of celebrity tweets and thousands of news reports, including dozens in Westward, most recently in a roundup of famous Colorado hoaxes. And the stories had staying power, even after the family moved to Florida in 2010. The Heen Sons formed a short-lived rock band, the Heen Boys, and Governor Jared Polis pardoned Richard and Mayumi Heen in 2020. In fact, the event so imprinted itself on the American psyche that the saga of Balloon Boy was just resurrected two weeks ago in a Saturday Night Live riff on full of hot air George Santos. But wait, isn't Bowen Yang, who played Santos, of Chinese descent? And didn't he grow up? at least partially, in Colorado, moving to Aurora right around the time the balloon boy story took off? Just floating another trial balloon. Golden goes to the dogs. About 3,000 golden retrievers gather for annual event by Kyle Wagner. Not every dog gets to have its day, but on February 4th, about 3,000 golden retrievers, along with a few golden wannabes, We're looking at you, Bernese Mountain Dogs. Got There is at the 3rd Goldens in Golden, held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. in this small, charm-filled city in Colorado's foothills. Billed as the world's largest unofficial gathering of Goldens, the get-together is hosted by Visit Golden, and this year occurred the day after National Golden Retriever Day, which is February 3rd. The event was founded in 2019 by Joy Meadows, who has worked with Visit Golden for 15 years. Meadows says she was inspired by her golden retriever, Waffle, who passed away in 2022, but was definitely there in spirit, along with the Meadows family's newest addition, Sadie. The first year we held this event, we had counters and tried to have an official count, but as you can imagine, that was impossible, Meadows says. So now we are hands down the unofficial world record holder for the world's largest gathering of a single dog breed. There is one in Scotland, which has an annual event in the birthplace of golden retrievers, but they've never had more than 400. And the beach community in LA also has a goldens gathering, but they've never cracked a thousand. Someday, Meadows says, they might get organized enough to have an official count, but as she points out, that sort of defeats the spirit of this easy-going breed and this easy-going town. Washington Avenue is shut down for the gathering, and the whole downtown area gets in on the fun by offering pet-friendly patio dining and lodging deals. There are also dog treats handed out by the shops, and one of the most popular spots for humans, a dog's welcome beer garden at Golden Mills, hosted the after party. Not everyone who comes to the event has a Golden, or even owns a dog at all. I'm here for the pure joy of it, says Madeline Grzanski, who moved a Golden four years ago from North Carolina and never looked back. I'm 82 years old, and I know how important it is to just enjoy the good things in life. And this is definitely one of them. Look how cute they all are. At noon, most of the participants gathered under the welcome arch on Washington Avenue for a group photo, and the rest of the time was spent going through the line to get a pup cup of whipped cream. After they ran out of cups, pet owners were just having it sprayed into their hands for the dogs to lick off, or jumping into Clear Creek, a classic way to spend a day in Golden. Some dogs just sat happily next to their owners, while others tried to break the world record for most butts sniffed. Amazingly, over the two hours, not one dogfight broke out, which is why this event could really only be held for the famously friendly Golden. I just love seeing all the shapes and sizes, says Dawn Champion, who drove with her Golden, Kala, from Pueblo West. It really is amazing how everyone is so well behaved, even the people. According to the American Kennel Club, The Golden Retriever has been in the top five most popular breeds, and usually in the number three slot, for more than a decade. The Labrador Retriever has been number one since 1991, but you don't want to get into an argument here where there are thousands of owners who'd beg to differ. Lakewood is a diabolical hotbed in crime novel Every Missing Girl by Teague Bolin. Mystery author Leanne Cale Sparks might live in Texas these days, but she sets her crime and suspense novels in the state where she grew up, Colorado. More specifically, Lakewood, which in her mystery series is a hotbed of diabolical misdeeds masked by a sheen of neighborhood amiability, guarded by badass FBI agent Kendall Beck, and probably a stern letter from the HOA. The first book in the series, Sparks' debut novel is 2013's The Wrong Woman, which kicked off the story of Kendall Beck. Sparks is doing two readings of her second novel in the series, Every Missing Girl, along the Front Range this weekend, and hopes to continue with a third and possibly fourth book. It would be fun to expand Kendall's story further, says Sparks, and I'm not quite ready to leave Lakewood just yet. But Sparks is used to moving around, She left Colorado in 1991 when she married into military life. My life growing up was really good practice for becoming a military wife, Sparks says, because we moved around a lot in Colorado Springs when I was a kid. She went to two different elementary schools, two different middle schools, and two different high schools in the springs, with eight or ten different houses during that time. Why all the moves? My mom really liked new homes, Sparks laughs. Sparks attended the University of Northern Colorado for a few years before moving back to the springs and working until she met her husband and moved out of state. But she kept enrolling in different colleges wherever they were stationed, working to finish her degree. I think by the time I applied to law school, I had transcripts from eight different schools, says Sparks. She finally got her bachelor's degree from Utah Valley State College and went to law school in South Dakota. I was done taking my time, she recalls. It took 18 years to get her bachelor's degree, but only three to get her law degree, which she completed in 2007. Her career in law was admittedly short, according to Sparks. Moving around so much didn't allow for much in terms of longevity for any position, and transferring from state to state meant new licensure all the time. In the end, she says, I really just got tired of taking the bar exam." So she turned to writing around 2012, thinking she was going to write romance novels. I thought it would be easy to write, she says, shaking her head. I thought I'd get into it and learn the business. Please don't kill me, people who write romance. I understand now. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was really difficult. Back then, the self-publishing world was just beginning to boom as well. I was too impatient, says Sparks. I wish I'd just slowed down, not rushed it. I'm just not the kind of person who can handle the business end of self-publishing. I just couldn't do it. And part of the problem, she admits, is that her heart wasn't in it. I started writing romantic suspense, she says, because I liked writing mysteries and thrillers and murder and stuff like that. I'd get to the end of a story and I'd realize, crap, I forgot to put the romance in there. Sparks had a fellow writer and friend in Denver who read an early draft of The Wrong Woman, Son's Romance, and told her, This is what you should be writing. Stop romance and go here. Sparks took that advice and things began to fall into place. She revised her manuscript, found an agent, and sold her first book by the following year. I lucked out, she says. But luck, so they say, is recognizing when you're in the right place at the right time. Everything Sparks experienced seems to have led her to the authorial life she's currently living, from her Colorado roots to her itinerant home life, her law degree, and the mysteries she pens. She credits the stories of Perry Mason more than anything else. She watched the reruns with her North Carolina grandmother religiously every summer. And her stepfather was a cinematographer who worked on some of the Perry Mason TV movies filmed in Denver in the 1980s. And Sparks says she's fascinated by the criminal mind. How do you get to that mindset where it's acceptable to kill somebody, she ponders. It's so interesting to me how that happens and why. I think that's universal. That's natural curiosity. It's like an accident on the interstate. Everybody slows down to see what's going on. Nobody wants to see the blood and gore because that's sad, but you also kind of do want to see because you want to know the story. Leanne Cale-Sparks will read and sign Every Missing Girl at 6 p.m. Saturday, February 11th at Tattered Cover in Colorado Springs, 112 North Tejon Street, and at 2 p.m. Sunday, February 12th at the Barnes & Noble in Denver West Village, 14347 West Colfax Avenue in Lakewood. I was robbed in downtown Denver for my leftovers by Molly Martin. Every time I write about a restaurant opening in downtown Denver inevitably a comment or two or 10 is posted about how dangerous the area is but as someone who frequently dines out all over the city I've never felt unsafe going anywhere downtown whether it's to a new restaurant on the 16th Street Mall or a bar in Rhino though I admittedly don't frequent Lodo after letout, But then, no restaurants are open there at that hour anyway. The danger many are talking about is directly related to the homeless population, which has become more visible since the pandemic. I've had plenty of interactions with people on the streets while out and about. I'm happy to hand an extra, extra cigarette to anyone who asks, or spare some change, or even a couple of bucks if I have the cash on hand. For the most part, I get a polite thank you before I go on with my evening. A box of leftovers led to the most aggressive interaction I've experienced. Everyday Pizza opened at 2161 Larimer Street last August. It's an all-vegan pizza concept from the owners of Somebody People, a bright and airy vegan eatery on South Broadway. Like its sister restaurant, it's filled with pops of color, from the pastel pink bar stools to the green glassware and floors. As a lover of cheese, I was skeptical going into everyday pizza. But soon I was swept up in enjoying the surprisingly delicious root vegetable pizza I split with a friend. I could bathe in this garlic aioli, my dining companion commented as I nodded and happily chewed. But then, bang! The noise startled me, and I turned around to see a man walking by the windows, holding up some sort of large stick in his hand. I'm so used to that now, the bartender commented nonchalantly. Everyday pizza is just around the corner from the Denver Rescue Mission. No one seemed particularly concerned, so we wrapped up the leftovers, and I crossed 22nd Street as I headed to my car, box in hand. Two men were standing on the sidewalk in front of the spot where I'd parked. They looked my way. I made eye contact and smiled. Then one of the men lunged toward me suddenly, getting within a foot of my face as he said, you're going to give me your food. Sure, I replied, totally thrown by the interaction. If he hadn't taken the initiative, I probably would have offered up the leftovers on my own accord, as I often do. It's one slice of vegan pizza. Yeah, it is, he yelled in surprise, turning back to the other man as I got into my car. I watched him in the rearview mirror for a second and saw him waving the box around while he returned to his conversation. I pulled away, wondering if he was actually going to eat the slice or just throw it on the ground. I'll never know if he enjoyed that vegan, vegan pizza as much as I had. But as I drove home, I recalled another experience with leftovers years earlier when I was on a different stretch of Larimer leaving work and class after dinner with a group of friends. We had ordered way too much food, and I had a packed box of leftovers in hand as we headed to our next destination. Not wanting to tote the box around all night, I offered it to the first person I saw who looked like they could use it. Hey, would you like this? It's from that restaurant over there, and it's really good, I said. Sure, thank you, the man replied. As he took the box, he asked what was inside. It's mostly roasted goat, I told him. Fuck you, he yelled, returning the box to me and walking away. It's really good, I swear, I said as I tried to defend the goat's honor. Another person quickly swooped in, happily offering to take the meat off my hands as I continued unburdened toward a bar, happy that no food was going to waste on my watch that night. By the way, although it's no longer on the menu because the cost became prohibitive, The goat was a standout at working class for years, and definitely not vegan. 10 Offbeat Ways to Feast This Valentine's Day by Molly Martin The history of Valentine's Day is less than lovely, since the date was originally intended to commemorate the beheading of a man variously considered to be the patron saint of epileptics, lovers, beekeepers, travelers, and young people, These days, it's become an excuse to separate people from their money and release a flood of chalky chocolates into the marketplace. If a traditional Valentine's celebration filled with roses and multi-course meals is your jam, Denver restaurants have you covered. But if you'd rather avoid one of the busiest times of the year at the city's finer dining establishments, you can still mark the day and treat a friend, with or without benefits, to a memorable meal. Consider these options. Head out for a late-night Korean fried chicken. A hole-in-the-wall Korean restaurant next to H Mart, Funny Plus, 2779, South Parker Road, Aurora, is rarely crowded on Valentine's Day. I know that for a fact because I've stopped in on February 14th for several years, happily noshing on a heaping plate of Korean fried chicken. Eat tacos at a restaurant attached to a gas station. The tiny Garibaldi Mexican Bistro may be attached to a Conoco gas station at 3298 South Broadway in Inglewood, but the food it's serving is nothing like what you'd find sitting sadly in the case at 7-Eleven. Skip the roses and deliver a dozen empanadas. Nothing says romance like a bag full of carbs, and empanadas taste a hell of a lot better than any bouquet. Our recommendation: order ahead from Maria Empanada, a longtime staple on South Broadway that offers a wide variety of fillings to choose from. Have a fish and chips car picnic. You know what's way better than a box of chocolates? A box uh, or cardboard tray of fried food. Yorkshire fish and chips at 7572 Pecos Street is a low-key counter service spot that specialized in fish and chips for over 50 years. Feast on Burgers by Candlelight Candlelight Tavern that is. This dimly lit dive bar at 33 South Pearl Street is a low-key place to escape and enjoy some cold cheap drinks over burgers served in a basket with a bag of Lay's on the side Which means you can totally crack a you're all that and a bag of chips joke in order to fill the Valentine's Day lameness quota. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.